Hello everyone, Adam Fitzgerald returns to the podcast today. Adam was on recently talking about his in-depth research into the events of 9-11. I really learned a lot from that conversation and I was left feeling hungry to go much deeper into the topic. So both Adam and I feel that we can't understand 9-11 just by looking at the day itself, the surrounding months, or even the surrounding years or decade. It's an event that has its roots in deep history. And not only that, but there were various different strands leading into it. So Adam's agreed with me to do a series of videos where he'll bring his research and knowledge gained over the past decade or more of intense study of this. And I'll come with my more superficial knowledge and ask him the kind of questions that someone with a more superficial knowledge might want to ask and hopefully will produce something that is really in-depth and also accessible. So I mentioned various different strands and the first one we're going to pick up on is the Islamic strand, the Islamic road to 9-11, if you like. Now, for some people, that's the only game in town. That's the only strand there is. 9-11 was an Islamic plot, plain and simple. No more to say about it. For other people, the Islamic aspect is so minimal, it's hardly even worth talking about because they will see that aspect as being just a, a sock puppet for US and Zionist imperialism. We'll certainly get on to talking about things like US and Zionist imperialism in future episodes, but even to make that determination, to determine what this Islamic terror thing is, we first have to understand the narrative of it, and that's where we're going to go. So I will ask Adam deeper questions about it, about Western collusion with radical Islam, about Western sponsorship of terrorism, why Western governments would do this kind of thing, and questions about double agents. It's certainly a world where not everyone is who they are claiming to be. But I start out asking him to give a narrative of how this more radical Islamic movement came about, what its origins are, and how we define it in the relationship to the rest of Islam. Well, what, what we're talking about is uh, the Wahhabi ideology of Islam. Um, Islamism. Um, uh, the, the name Wahhabi Islam is named after uh, an 18th century preacher named uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul al-Wahhab. He would actually start this uh, reformation movement in uh, Najd, which is located in the central part of Saudi Arabia even today, but at the time it was called the Emirate of Daria. Um, his father, uh, Salman ibn Abdul al-Wahhab, opposed uh, his son's teachings, uh, which was considered a deviation from the, um, the more uh, uh, contemptuous Sunni Islamic school of thought. But um, when Abdul Wahab was a young man, he went to Medina to study. And what uh, really formed this, uh, almost this uh, far right orthodoxy of Sunni Islam, he saw um, foreigners, uh, visiting the uh, the Kaaba, which is the most sacred site in all of Islam, um, he would see that they were kissing the Dome of the Rock. He would also notice people praying at the uh, the Green Dome, which is the grave of Prophet Muhammad. Um, Al Wahhab uh, was actually horrified to to see this, and um, he was cast out of the family when he started preaching uh, almost this. Um, really far orthodox, this, this off-the-path uh, ideology of this 
Wahhab mentality. Um, and he was cast out of the city of Najid. Um, he relocated to the uh, uh, center of Daria, a, a town um, which had the local emir called Muhammad ibn Saud. Um, here, Wahhab was granted protection under uh, Saud, who heard about uh, the beleaguered preacher's teachings, which uh, were under attack from local Sunni Muslims. Um, so they decided to work together to implement uh, Wahhab's ideologies by bringing back a more traditional form. When I say about this is that they're talking about the three generations of, of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, the companions and the, the generation, the first generations of the companions. That's what uh, they wanted to bring back, the, the teachings of Ibn Tamiyah and Ibn uh, uh, al-Uthul Amin. Um, and in 1744, the alliance between the clans of uh, Muhammad Abdul Wahhab and Muhammad Ibn Saud was formalized, uh, most notably during the wedding of Muhammad Ibn Wahhab's daughter to Abdul Aziz, who is the son and the successor of Ibn Saud. Therefore, the descendants of uh, Muhammad uh, bin Saud and the descendants of Abdul Wahhab have remained closely linked even to the, the present day. Um, so the Saudi state would enter uh, this numerous transformations uh, leading to question if the Wahhabi ideology would survive even under the attacks of the Ottoman Empire. But in 1901, um, Abdul Aziz bin Saud, the fifth generation uh, descendant of Muhammad Ibn Saud, would embark on a military campaign. And this would witness the conquest of most of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, which in turn um, would um, eliminate the Ottoman Empire and give rise to uh, Saudi Arabia, the nation state of Saudi Arabia. Um, the uh, success of Abdullah bin Saud would uh, probably uh, would actually lay way for the religious institutions in the kingdom, and it was also uh, bring forth the birth of the Sudari Seven, or the Seven Lines, the uh, the brotherhood of the uh, the sons of the originator Muhammad bin Saud. It's called the uh, the Sudari Seven. Okay, so um, that, that that was an interesting thing to me when I was looking into this that the current Saud family, who have been renamed Arabia, Saudi Arabia about 70 years ago, you can trace them way back as a tribal chieftains there, 250 years, where they made this alliance with this particularly Islamic preacher. When you say um, Wahhabism was rejected by the Sunni Muslims of the time, how exactly was it differing? Was it more austere, more fundamentalist, more by the book? What, what was the conflict there in the ideologies? Well, actually, the conflict started with the veneration of saints, um, uh, praying or worshiping the dead at the graves, which is what um, Abdul Wahhab was set against. He thought that these were idolatrous at best and that they were uh, causing uh, Muslims to commit takfir. Uh, they would consider uh, these people to be fake Muslims, not actual traditional contemporary. Uh, like I said, the first three generations of Muhammad and the companions he saw as the more traditional. In other words, uh, what he was trying to imply was that the traditions of the first generations of Muhammad were to be uh, taught in, in, in modern day, uh, modern day, of the, even just today, which is which, when you see groups like Al-Qaeda or even ISIS, which would be a better example, and you see these, they're all, even on their physical deformity, they look barbaric, they're unclean, they, they, uh, 
they commit atrocities even against uh, Shia Muslims, which uh, we even Al Qaeda would be against because they see this as a an affront to the Prophet Muhammad. But they consider the idolatrous nature of of these Shiites and these Alawite Muslims, these mystic Muslims, as something as a a deviation to the true uh, teachings of Muhammad, which was Sunni Islam, and that's what dominates the um, the Sunni sphere today, unfortunately, because most of the uh, Sunni Muslims that we see today are moderate Muslims, but they don't have a big voice. The, uh, unfortunately, the biggest voice comes from the these uh, Wahhab, or the, as they say, the, Sal the Salafist movement, um, which is uh, predominant in countries like Iraq, and Afghanistan, and Indonesia, and the Philippines. Okay. So we'll talk about how we, we got to that place where it became predominant, but it might be helpful. I'm just trying to think of something that people, myself and people can relate to in terms of another religion, say Christianity, that you have these reformation movements every now and then of getting back to the fundamentals, right? Of where there's this feeling that Christianity has grown away from its essence and people have started venerating Mary or venerating saints. And there's a call back to what it actually said in the Bible and, living a more biblical life. And then also at different times, the want to tie that in more strongly with politics, okay, in a theocratic sense. So w would that be comparable to what we're talking about here with Wahhabism? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, when it comes to Christianity, especially in the United States, uh, during the, I would say the 16th or 17th centuries, you had the Spanish and the British colonies, which brought the Roman Catholicism, Northern European uh, people who introduced uh, Protestantism to the Northeast. Uh, you had numerous Reformation movements in the 18th and 19th centuries, especially, uh, which would see an, influ an influx of beliefs uh, rising from them. Uh, uh, Protestants, uh, you had Catholics, uh, liberal Christianity, Christian fundamentalism, Roman Orthodoxy, Mormonism. Islam is a little bit more uh, simpler. Uh, there's a limited number of Islamic sects, and basically just two dominating um, sects, which would be the Sunni and Shia mm -hmm. um, uh, ideologies themselves. They're uh, far less to have a an influx of ideologies. So Christianity, I believe, has um, uh, close to like 3,000, 4,000 different sects within just the faith itself. So there's an so you almost have this um, unwavering. A contemptuous uh, group of people that that despise one another based upon these simple mistranslations of the King James or the New International Version, the Wycliffe, which was the first English translated Bible. But so many mistranslations of these Bibles, which led to so many differing uh, points within Christianity itself. I think Islam sees a less problematic approach, especially. Um, in the Middle East itself, in the uh, Southeast Asia. So I, I, when it comes to the, the, the comparable uh, problems of Christianity, Islam, I don't, I, I don't see it, actually. So what I'm getting at, I suppose, though, is um, if you want to, like, if you want to get their heads around something like Wahhabism, trying to find something in our own experience we could compare it to like a fundamentalist Christian preacher who might want to like, I don't know, maybe John, a John Calvin figure or someone like that. Would you see what I mean? So people can right. relate to it. Right. We, 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 I hear what you're saying. Um, is there like a religion with a Christianity that's 
coincidental to Wahhabi Islam. Um, just in a, in a broad sense, just so people can get, okay, like it, we, I can see, I can understand that in my own society, so I can see something right. similar. Like, well, I, well, I, boy, um, probably would, it, I think it would, would have to be Orthodox, uh, the Orthodox Christians, because they're the literalist and they go by the Old Testament themselves. Um, so that would be almost comparable because if you read, uh, you know, Exodus or Deuteronomy, you see these, you know, barbaric uh, practices mm -hmm. that uh, are no longer in practice today. But if you look at uh, certain Orthodox preachers, uh, especially um, the evangelical, uh, evangelical Republicans, some of these people want to bring back the, the old uh, sure. Judeo-Christian yeah. practices themselves. Um, a, a great example would be um, someone like a John Hagee. John Hagee actually wants to see uh, more of a harsher punishment for divorce. Um, and this, you know, and this is a person who actually believes in the literal translation of Revelations. He wants to see, um, you know, yeah. the 100. Actually, he, John, John Hagee was the person who popped into my mind when I was thinking of a, a comparison. Um, so people who don't know who John Hagee is, um, you have a happier life than me and Adam, I would suggest. Uh, but yes, you can, you can look him up. Um, so then it's the equivalent of, let's say, if a, a Christian fundamentalist character got very enmeshed within a government and then that government went from ruling over a desert to ruling over the most resource-rich land in the world virtually overnight when the Saudis hit oil, right? They, they've, they've heard it's been discovered in Iraq and Iran and they start looking out into the desert. They invite an American oil company in to prospect for them and yeah, they find it and they find a trillion barrels of it or, or more there over the years. So suddenly these um, Bedouins in the desert have, have struck oil and now there's all this money there to put into Wahhabism and it starts to influence the world. So perhaps you can pick up on that story and say, take that as far as you want to take it. And at some point I know we're going we're gonna to jump over to Egypt and talk about the other major factor in this equation, which is the Muslim Brotherhood. So maybe, maybe, tell the Wahhabism story. Uh, I don't know if there's much of a direct relationship there with the Muslim Brotherhood, but tell the Wahhabism story as much as you want to at this point, Adam, and then we'll, we'll go on. Well, oh, well, and I would, I would start up with um, uh, Al-Wahhab would die in uh, 1792, uh, but the religious institution in the kingdom would remain, um, and it would extend from Iran. I don't think even he would... Uh, come to understanding of how fast this uh, Wahhabi ideology would permeate into other Arab nation states such as Iraq and uh, United Arab Emirates and Egypt. But because of the Saudi petrodollar becoming the poignant financial backing of the Wahhabi movement led by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, madrasas were implemented in uh, uh, other locations such as uh, Pakistan, uh, Canada, Sud Sudan, Indonesia, Philippines, the United States over the, the, the next 100 years. Um, but the Salafi uh, movement would uh, rise in Egypt in the, uh, the late 19th centuries as a response to uh, European uh, imperialism, which would hold roots um, in the 18th century Wahhabi movement. Could you just define Salafism? Because I don't think we've defined that yet as a different word. Yeah, the, well, the Salafi movement is centered around the, the traditions of the Salaf. Um, who are the first three generations of Muslims, okay. uh, so, that was explained before. Um, that includes the generations of the Prophet Muhammad, 
his companions, their successors, and the, uh, the successors of these successors. Um, the majority of the Salafs are basically just in the Gulf states, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. Um, the current, uh, current day Salafism has become associated with literalism, a strict opposed to Islam, much like Wahhabi Islam. Um, the Salafi Islamic movement followed the, the literal translations and junctions of like Ibn Tamir and his disciple Ibn Kathir. Uh, these are the people who will follow the, the Hanbali school of thought. Um, of course, uh, Abu uh, Ahmad Ibn Hanbali um, was a Sunni theologian. Um, but okay. the Wahhabi ideology is still present today, as it was 260 years ago. Sure, um, and you mean it's picking up in Egypt in the 19th century as a response to Western imperialism there? Yes. Um, the, the, this, uh, if you want, this could lead into the the questioning of the um, how it started the uh, this this Wahhabi ideology permeated um, into Egypt. If you want, I mean, uh, I could. Only yeah, so that, I'm curious about that. So was it a permeation? Okay, it, I, I, I don't know if these are two independently arising things, or if Wahhabism was the influence for this in Egypt. Um, I, I would well, especially Egypt. I mean. Egypt also saw almost this trans this transition into this Arab nationalism, into um, this religious fundamentalist that uh, they had the problems even today. But um, if you want, I'll I'll uh, give you a, a short rundown about the the origins of the Muslim Brotherhood, if you wish. Yeah, please. Yes, please do. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood originated in uh, 1928. Um, by an Egyptian school teacher named Hassan al-Banna. Um, the group is centered around political activism and Islamic charity work. Um, and of course, al-Banna's influence uh, to becoming a teacher came from his father, uh, Sheikh Ahmed uh, Abdul al-Rahman. I think I'm saying that right. Um, and the doctrine of the Hanbali Purantism, this, uh, as defined in the uh, Salafist movement, de defined the movement of Muslims who think back to like the earlier times and seek to return to the, um, the fundamentals of the Islamic faith and to live similarly like uh, Muhammad's companions did. But when the, the Ottoman Empire was abolished in 1928, Albana was still a student in Cairo. Um, the Waft Party, um, I think I'm saying that correct, W-A-F-T, the Waft Party was a nationalist liberal po uh, political party in Egypt. Um, it was uh, said to be Egypt's most popular and influential political party for the period from the end of uh, World War I uh, through the 1930s. Um, and many who lived under the leadership of the Waf Party were dissatisfied. And they were you know, concerned about the promotion of secularism and its nationalist ideals. Um, and this led to Albana to, to come to terms that a new concentration is needed for Egypt as a whole. I mean, uh, the, comp the complaints of those uh, against the Wap Party coincided with Albana, and it was here that Albana formed the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, of course, there were like dozens of small disorganized Islamic groups at this time in the early 1930s, but these organizations um, tried to promote piety engaged in charitable act activities. But by the late 1930s, the Muslim Brotherhood had established branches in every Egyptian province. Uh, even in the 1940s, it grew to like, uh, I believe half a million active members. Um, the Brotherhood's stated goal is to instill the Quran and the Sunnah 
as the sole reference point for ordering the life of the Muslim family, individuality, uh, community, and the state, as opposed to this uh, pan-Arabist nationalist regime, uh, the secular ideology. Okay, so that's, uh, that's another uh, factor that we haven't touched upon, where, the, where the, you've got these competing forces, right? On the one hand, the Muslim Brotherhood, who I think the saying goes, the Quran is the constitution, right? They want a theocracy. Right. And on the other hand, you have a rising nationalist movement, because in charge, I believe it was King Farouk in charge in Egypt yeah. at the time, and he was kind of put there or supported by the British because he was subservient to British interests, and that's true of the region as a whole, that... Uh, as the British were taking a less overt role in, in running it, they were leaving the kind of people in who would be subservient to their interest and rising against that. On one hand, you've got the religious fundamentalists and on the other hand, you've got secular nationalists who obviously are so in some ways opposed but have a shared goal of getting the foreigners out, right? So right. how does that whole... Um, how does how does how does that whole situation play out then over the forties and fifties when you start to have these revolutions in in Egypt and other Islamic countries? Well, there were there were numerous um, nationalist ideologies that permeated the pan Arabist world: um, Egypt, Syria, Iraq. Um, uh, these ideologies were seen as a threat uh, to the uh, the Anglo-Saxon uh, global elite of the United States and uh, Great Britain. Um, I could go into the uh, uh, the the change if you, if you want. I, I, I'll I'll talk about this and uh, um, how this uh, changed. But I, I would think um, it came to a reaching influence where it was moved. I think in 1982, a 12-point document um, was created. Uh, towards a worldwide strategy for Islamic policy. Uh, it was written by uh, an Islamic scholar in Qatar named Yusuf al Kardawi. It was to implement the, uh, a global caliphate on the earth mm -hmm. in, in overshadowing the uh, pan Arabist nationalist movements, which were also seen as a, a, a direct affront, almost a, you know, a secular ideology, which is, of course, um, uh, as a means to uh, to fight off the, the fundamentalist regimes that would would come after the the end of the nationalist movements, um, uh, but I'll just go into a little detail about Albana's writings. Yeah, um, this is the founder um, which, of the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, what's that? I'm just reminding people it's the founder. Albana's the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. Uh, yeah, his actually his writings taught members of the Brotherhood to. Uh, actually, Albana was not a fundamentalist by any means. He saw. Um, this change, this uh, this change for a secular ideology, but he didn't uh, consider jihad as a um, a literal translation of physical jihad. He saw it as an inner movement within itself. Um, uh, he never engaged in terrorism. He forbidden it actually. And after his death in 1949, in which he was assassinated along with his brother-in-law by two men who were waiting for um, while they were waiting for a taxi. Uh, the death was blamed on King Farouk, in which you named before, uh, who was, uh, by the way, who was the 10th ruler of Egypt. Uh, he was said to have been blamed for the planning of the attack. Um, but as of today, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood is the probably the oldest and largest Islamic organization in existence today. 
but um, the coincidence between uh, the Muslim Brotherhood of today and yesterday is that Albana's movement, when he first started the, the Brotherhood, forbid violence. Mm-hmm. And even though they fought the colonist rulers of Great Britain, uh, France, Albana claimed that the jihad of the heart um, was more important than the uh, the jihad of the sword, so to speak. Right. Uh, he advocated moral reform and advocated against uh, the violent takeover of power. Um, by the way, the, the Muslim Brotherhood had, had a wide-ranging uh, influence, which gave rise to it, another um, Islamic poet and theologian named Saeed Qutb. Um, if you want, I'll, I'll get into it. Yeah, our, that, that would be great. I think we probably need to tell the story of Egypt a bit first and the old okay, king, um, and then get into because Qutb is coming in the 50s just after that. Right, and it's very, Qutb's a very interesting guy. I'd like to hear about him. Um, in, you know, in, in some detail, his trip to America or all. But I think talking about the, the revolution in Egypt and the relationship between Nasser and the Brotherhood and how that broke down and, and so on, and, the, and how the British play into it might be, if you could give that story, that'd be great. Right. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Egyptian um, US uh, forming alliances with uh, numerous uh, pan Arabist movements um, just led to. Uh, Gamal Nasser, or as they say, Nasserism. Uh, Gamal Nasser actually promoted a socialist Arab nationalist political ideology, uh, which was in turn involved with the Egyptian revolution in 1952. Um, Gamal, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the, the tenets of Nasserism. This is almost like this, uh, like I said, it's an uh, Arab nationalist political ideology. Um, it combines elements of Arab socialism, um, Republicanism, nationalism, anti-imperialism. Uh, the tenets of Nas- Nasserism is mindful of both the Islamic and Christian heritage of the Arab world, as with uh, uh, Baathism, which was predominant in Iraq at one point. Um, it's a secular ideology, in other words. Um, and the ideologies that were permeated from Gam- uh, Gamal Nasser uh, spread into uh, other countries like Iraq and Syria. And this... Uh, generally secular movement um, saw this as an affront uh, to numerous uh, religious fundamentalists who saw this as a, uh, a threat to the uh, ideologies of uh, the Wahhabi mentality itself. And also, this also provided a, um, uh, almost a, uh, a problem for the Anglo-Saxon movement of the United States and Great Britain itself. Um, which I'll get into a little bit later about what uh, they promoted and how they tried to overthrow the nationalist ideologies of Egypt and Syria itself. Um, but meanwhile, um, Nasser himself took over power after, uh, uh, I, I'm sorry, um, uh, 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 I'm sorry, who came after uh, Nasser himself? No, the next president after Nasser. Anwar Sadat? Um, uh, Anwar, thank you very much. Anwar Sadat, thank you. Yeah, Anwar Sadat actually saw Nasser's almost pro-nationalist movement as too rigid, as too extreme. So what he wanted to do was create um, a more relaxed form of government. But what he did was was that even though he tried to do tried to promote economic reform for the poor and for the moderately uh, the moderate. Um, he actually was for the affluent itself uh, behind the scenes. And this caused an uprising within the country, a small uprising as will, which uh, permeated to the bread riots of 1977. Um, 
immediately after this, he transitioned to a more um, egregious affront to the religious sector. He tried to um, build bridges with uh, Israel itself and the United States. And this gave rise to the religious sector itself, which was, by the way, which was under persecution under Nasser and under Sadat himself. But I, I believe Nasser was a little bit more extreme. He jailed uh, numerous uh, high-ranking members of al-Jihad, uh, Gamma Islamiyah, um, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, and all these people who suffered uh, enormous pressures on the jail. They were, uh, some of them had their feet dismembered. There was numerous barbaric practices under Nasser himself. And they thought that with um, Sadat's uh, presidency, this would, he would, he actually thought that they, they would be, he would be more lenient in, um, in his practices, but he was just as, as just as brutal. But um, the final straw came on the back of uh, when he tried to uh, alleviate and, uh, uh, with the, the tension between Israel and the religious sector. And in 1981, he was assassinated by members of al-Jihad. Um, this saw of uh, the transition between um, this nationalist movement that permeated Egypt. Now you see this overthrow, this, this religious extremism that come under, basically under the Gamut Islamiyah and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Numerous people were arrested. Uh, numerous notable people like Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, uh, Omar Abdul Rahman, the blind sheikh, who would go on to have later ramifications, especially for New York. Uh, during the 90s and the early sure. 2000s. Um, and what we're seeing also in Egypt today uh, had even this ripple effect, as you can see, uh, the transition from nat the Pan-Ab nationalism that permeated uh, Iraq and Syria, uh, especially with Egypt, which we're, we're talking about here, just Egypt, uh, this transition to nationalism to, to religious fervor. Now that um, what comes after this religious fervor? Well, we've yet to see because we still see, I mean, Ayman al-Zawahiri is still alive, but we just don't know where he is. Okay, so back in this period of NASA, um, you have a similar thing going on in Iran where the, the Shah of Iran, Reza Bavali Shah, is his power severely diminished by Mohammad Mossadegh becomes the prime minister. So you've got these two secular nationalist figures Okay, um, I'd just like to ask about the collusion between Western governments and radical Islam, because this is a theme that runs throughout the century then, and it's a theme that really escalates when we get into Afghanistan in our next talk. That's when it really gets ratcheted up a lot. Um, but I think it's, it's easy to understand in a country like Saudi Arabia, where the Islamists run the country, essentially, why you would have collusion between Western powers and Islamists, because you know, they've got the oil, they're in charge, so they're the people you deal with. But I think to the average person looking at Egypt and Iran, you would think Western governments would have really be driven to relate to and perhaps be supportive of or encouraging of regimes like Mossadegh's in Iran, Nasser's in Egypt, because they're secular nationalists, um, some of the excesses of torture in Nasser's Egypt aside, neither of those men would have looked out of place running a European country at the time. Uh, they'd fitted in there. And 
they seem to have the most in common with Western ideology. And yet you find this nationalist ideology is the one that Western governments are the most opposed to and are prepared to covertly support groups like the Muslim Brotherhood to overthrow and diminish and to support and ally with the Saudis in diminishing nationalism. So could you talk about that perhaps? The, and in, in um, Iran, this led to a revolution and in Egypt, it led to a short war. Where, where the British invaded. So could you pick up on that theme of why it is that there is this um, hostility towards these nationalist movements around the whole world, but particularly we're talking about the Middle East here, um, to the extent of allying with people who seem to have a very different kind of ideology than, than Western governments would pertain to? Right, I, I think the, the problem stems from that there's the Anglo-Saxon uh, global powers like Great Britain and the United States saw um, this almost this uh, unification of the nationalist ideology as a, a direct threat uh, to expansionism in these countries, and that's because um, they, on the on the on the pan-Arabist level, they saw that they didn't need these imperial powers of Great Britain and the United States to dictate the nation's um, laws and regulations. So they saw them as uh, an unnecessary. Um, a problem. Um, the pan-Arabist movement and the Arab nationalist ideology was seen were not seen as, uh, excuse me, as viable as viable assets uh, to the foreign powers of the United States and Great Britain. They saw the unification of uh, the Arab people as a growing and pertinent problem, which could cause um, an Islamic Ummah or a global unification of Arabs which could threaten the Anglo-Christian identity in, in the future years. Um, the, and I think in November, I believe it was November 20th or 21st, uh, 1952, uh, the Colonial and Commonwealth Relations Office produced a document called The Problem of Nationalism, um, a branch of the British Foreign Office um, that saw this document was to safeguard um, Great Britain as a world power, particularly in the economic and strategic fields against uh, the inherent dangers of nationalism. Um, as the Arab world became increasingly dismayed with the United States and Great Britain's determination for regional imperialism, um, the foreign powers decided to help overthrow the nationalist leaders of the uh, more educated Arab nations. Um, this, uh, ironically, they would be the Shiite nations, uh, uh, Syria, Iran. Uh, uh, thus, the oil-producing countries in the Arab nations would come under fire from the documents outlined, which saw um, nationalism as a direct threat to the uh, Anglo-Saxon powers. Um, and the, the effects from the Foreign Office document were read, immediately seen. Uh, for example, the Mau Mau uprising, which took place in 1953. In Kenya. Uh, uh, numerous indigenous peoples of Kenya had uh, fought against the British imperialists and local auxiliary militia who were uh, favoring the imperialists. Uh, the Bao Bao, uh, by the way, had failed to capture widespread public support and partly because of the British policy of divide and rule. Um, the Mau Mau uprising created um, a rift between European colonial communities in Kenya and saw this abhorrent wave of violence that caused dissension between the indigenous populations uh, which are still readily seen today. Um, and of course, 
also the Darul Islam Rebellion, uh, which was a war waged between 1949 and 1962 um, by the Islamic State of Indonesia. Hmm. Um, I'm going to say this name wrong, it's a long name. Um, uh, Sekar Maji Marjidan Karasaro, that's a long name. Um, he was an Islamic mystic, which saw the nationalist Dutch imperialists as the enemy. Um, he fought to gain independence from them in 1948, and after the war, he proclaimed the establishment of the Islamic State of Indonesia in 1949. He named himself the Imam, and his membership grew. Numerous supporters of the Indonesian military decided to switch allegiance, and members of the Darul's Islam tried several times to assassinate Sukarno, who was the president of Indonesia. Yeah, a nationalist, um, right, as well. So you have yeah, a similar story like Nasser um, and Mossadegh. Well, uh, he was under the nationalist movement under the Dutch uh, for many years, uh, Sukarno. Um, but in 1956, Sukarno's government and its military went on the offensive against Darul Islam. And in 1965, uh, Darul Islam was defeated. Uh, they were liquidated. But still some members actually managed to survive. And believe it or not, um, some members of uh, that group would later regroup and later form uh, Gemma Islamina, which is still present today. Um, but, in, but to show you how the United States influence um, in, uh, into this war, um, in 1965, Suharto, who became the second president of Indonesia, um, accused the, uh, the, the Communist Party, the Indonesian Communist Party, or the, um, uh, the P, uh, PK, PKI, um, of organizing a coup d'etat, which was, of course, false, never happened. But over the months that followed, uh, the systematic extermination of up to a million people um, who are affiliated with the party uh, were liquidated. They were killed brutally. Um, but it showed years later that it was the United States who backed Suharto. They hmm. backed Suharto's purge. And this came from uh, U.S., uh, uh, came from the documents that were released under the, uh, the FISA um, Accord. Uh, but, I mean, some elements within the U.S. government have been trying to undermine the overthrow of Sukarno, including uh, the Indonesia's anti-colonial independence leader and the first president far before 1965. And okay. this, this could, of course, leads into the the the, uh, the Iranian president, Mohammed Mossadegh, in 1953. Sure, yeah, so, well, yeah, just mentioned that one, yeah. Um, right. You want me to get into that a little bit? Yeah, just mention, what we'll do is we'll talk about the Iranian revolution. We'll just mention it, so we've got, uh, we're kind of presenting a narrative of what's going on, and then we'll move on to some of the more the effect this had on the Islamic world and the figure of Sai Qutb and and so on. So, right. talk, talk about what happened, I mean, it's fascinating what happened in Iran. So, talk, talk about right. Talk, uh, uh, 19, but, uh, sure, uh, sure, we can. Nineteen fifty-three, August 19, 1953, with the assistance of uh, the Anglo-Saxon countries, United States and Great Britain, uh, Iranian President Mohammad Mossadegh uh, was overthrown in a classic uh, coup d'état. Um, Dubbed Operation Boot under Great Britain and Operation Ajax by the United States. Um, they saw the, the strengthening of the monarch rule led by Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who is commonly known as the Shah of Iran. Um, he took over power, uh, which was believed to be the downfall of Mosaddegh because he actually sought to audit the documents of the Iranian, uh, I'm sorry, the Angelo, I, and the Anglo-Iranian oil company or the AI. OC, a British corporation. Mm. And he tried to limit the, the company's control over the Iranian oil reserves. And it was later revealed, many years later, that the CIA had funded Operation Ajax, which saw the 
Mohammed Mosdek in prison for three years and under house arrest for the rest of his life. Um, and this led to the monarchy of uh, the Shah of Iran, um, who would later, of course, be overthrown um, in the Iranian yeah. revolution in 1982. So we'll move on to the, the revolution because it's at the end of this, because it's kind of like the, the outcome of this. But essentially, the narrative we're seeing is that Western governments really dislike nationalist movements arising around the world. And they're prepared to ally with anyone, who, with groups whose ideologies or the outcomes of those ideologies we, we might find counter to our own or even abhorrent, people who are prepared to commit massive amounts of violence and repression, to put leaders in charge of these countries who will serve Western interests. And you see it with, um, we mentioned Suharto in Indonesia and Reza Bavali Shah in Iran, to get rid of the nationalists. And they're prepared to ally with, in, in the example we're setting, um, radical Islam as a, as to use it as a kind of tool or a proxy force. So I think in the example with, um, well, the British were supporting the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt to, uh, to bring down Nasser, and eventually there was an overt war in Egypt. And in Iran, it was um, the CIA agent on the ground was uh, Kermit Roosevelt, who I think he was Theodore's cousin, and um, was putting word around the mosques that Mossadegh was a communist, he was going to ban religion, attacking mosques, there were bombs going off at mosques, the idea that there was some communist revolution about to take place, really stirring up the radical Islamic elements to use them as a force to overthrow the Shah, sorry, the um, Prime Minister Mossadegh, and bring in the Shah. Now, they, the radical Islamic elements do not necessarily get what they want in these revolutions, because you ended up with a dictatorial Shah who was far too secular for them too. But that's that's a theme that's going to run throughout these presentations. To what extent have Western powers been willing to use radical Islam as a kind of Frankenstein's monster to achieve geopolitical purposes? Um, but then sticking with the Islamic narrative, there's this figure in the 50s in Egypt of Sai Qutb, who's, um, I forget what he did for a living, but he was working in the United States and then, I think he was a fairly secular figure to start out with, went to the United States and started to have a lot of reservations about the way Western culture was going and became a more hardline Muslim, wanting a Muslim society and became a huge influence in everything that followed, including movements like Al-Qaeda Al after that. So would, would you talk through the, the the, who Sai Qutb is and his relevance and importance to the whole movement? Right, you, you want me to give you a short rundown on Sayyid Qutb? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, um, well Sayyid Qutb was born uh, in 1906. Uh, he was born in the Asiya government of Egypt. Um, a little bit about his father. His father was a known political activist and would hold uh, weekly meetings uh, to discuss uh, political events. And uh, he would have Quranic recitations in his house. Um, and Sayyid Qutb first learned about the recitations of the Quran, and it would fuel this um, artistic side of his personality, which would form later on in his later years. He memorized remarkably the whole Quran at the age of 10. I mean, that's just pretty impressive in its own right. Uh, Qutub in his um, teenage years uh, became disillusioned with just religious studies though. And um, because he saw the religious institutions as oppressive toward more secular education, um, his thoughts regarding um, the pressures of the religious sector and holding them uh, in contempt um, 
in which those institutions were used to form public opinion and thoughts, uh, he believed were, were repressive. So uh, Kutub moved to Cairo uh, between uh, 1929 and 1933, uh, 32, 33. Uh, he ended his uh, educational studies uh, and his career as a teacher and the Ministry of Public Instruction began. Um, he was 24 at this time. He embarked on another adventure. Uh, he authored two books, and in er early 1940s, uh, Kutub would first encounter, and this is important, uh, the, the works of Alex Carroll. Uh, Alex Carroll uh, is a Nobel Prize winning biologist and a surgeon, and he was actually highly critical of Western civilization. Um, he believed that Western modernity uh, immersed uh, people in spirituality numbing. Um, and he believed in, in control and discipline of the spiritual side of the human race. And that rather than building uh, caring communities, it cultivated attitudes of self, like selfish individualism. Um, but it could have found Carol's work profound. And this, uh, he regarded him highly as a reasonable man uh, who found that there was a difference between um, the spirit and the machine, which was the body. Um, but an important um, aspect that could have actually happened between 1940 and 50. He went, actually went to the United States on a scholarship to study uh, the educational system. He wanted to become a teacher. Um, but at this time, Kutub was still westernized. Um, according to his uh, close friends in Egypt and some family, um, he enjoyed Hollywood movies. And he actually dressed in that um, well, like with Western style of clothing. Um, he visited um, major cities in the United States, um, spent time in Europe on his journey home, and actually on his return to Egypt in 1951, he would publish uh, one book, and it was called The America That I Have Seen, um, where he became explicitly critical of things he observed in the United States. Um, Kutub specifically uh, spoke out against its um, materialism, um, it's individual freedoms, racism, and he specifically hated uh, boxing matches. He thought they were brutal. Right. Um, he thought that the outward enthusiasm of sports was um, ridiculous. And he also noted that it had a strong support for the Israeli state, even as far back as uh, 1952. Yeah. That's important to note, that even that uh, the Israeli state still had this permeate uh, nationalism inside the United States. So it was here that he began advocating for an Islamic awakening, spiritually, in the, in the Arab states. And, but because he feared this westernized style of living, which would spread abroad. And he saw this uh, when he visited cities like Las Vegas, because he went there too. And he, what he didn't want was this westernized style of living to infect the hearts and minds of the Muslims. So in 1954, he joined the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, both Qutub and the Muslim Brotherhood welcomed the, uh, the coup d'etat of the government, actually. Um, but he had a close relationship with uh, Gamal Nasser at this time. Um, he, would, he would actually visit him in his house for 12 hours a day, week, weeks at a time. Um, but Nasser secretly set up the organization that would oppose the Muslim Brotherhood. And the organization was called the, um, the Tahrir, the ta the Tahrir. The Tahrir. Uh, but Kutub had no knowledge of his existence, nor its stated goal, actually. And he still trusted Nasser. Once Kutub found out that Nasser's plan was to overthrow the Muslim Brotherhood, um, they went out in, uh, planning uh, Nasser's assassination. Mm -hmm. But the plot was found out, and Kutub was jailed. Um, but 
this uh, would have enormous ramifications. I have to, uh, he would author two books and these would be the most important works in his history. The, the, works, the, the books would be called Millstones and In the Shade of the Quran. Uh, but Kutub was let out of prison in 1964 at the, um, the behest of the prime minister of Iraq. But for, for only eight months, he was uh, rearrested in 1965. And he was sentenced to death for his part in the, uh, the conspiracy to, to assassinate Nasser. In 1966, uh, Sayyid Kutub was hanged. But this was, this martyrdom, so to speak, would have ramifications in the Arab world. And this would influence uh, the Islamic Ummah as a whole, Sunni and Shia. His death had a direct influence on Islamic terrorist groups in Egypt and elsewhere. Um, his influence, uh, specifically on Al-Qaeda in years later, was felt through his writings, and those writings were the millstones. And, okay, and the, we'll come to his influence in just a sec. Just a couple of things that um, I understand about him was that one, he was tortured when he was arrested. Yes. This had a big effect on him because up until then, he'd seen the Western civilization led to a kind of isolation and a selfishness but then he came to believe that this direction Egypt had taken had led it to become brutal and evil even that there this total dehumanization um because it was the it was the CIA who had come in and had been teaching the enhanced interrogation technique say to NASA's government um and that his martyrdom uh, was just that because they, they NASA tried to give him an out on a couple of occasions and back down in some way so he didn't have to hang him but Kutu was aware that his words were I think he actually said my words would carry more weight if I die and he was prepared to die for that reason he there's something sort of reminiscent of the death of Socrates about it although was what I'm saying there accurate and no it is actually it actually um he was tried to uh try to abscond the religious sector itself Nasser actually did try to give him an out and he actually tried to have him abstain from um, having future uh, ramifications toward the uh, the government itself and Nasser itself because he saw that the 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 growing threat of the Muslim Brotherhood itself because at this time um, the Muslim Brotherhood was wasn't just the only Islamic organization that would threaten the government he saw the al-jihad um, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Gamma Islamia, and he saw these groups as uh, growing in 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 its uh, in its ideology and growing even outside of the uh, even Cairo itself into other of the nondescript cities and towns. And so, I think Nasser knew that if he could try to get Kutub to abstain just from uh, overthrowing the government. Um, he would leave him alone. But Kutub knew that even in death, uh, his his uh, ideology would become much more, almost mm. like a, a Star Wars when um, Obi-Wan Kenobi says his death would um, only bring about uh, the force, uh, the, the good force, the good side of the force, even more power. Yeah. And I think Kutub saw this. And that's why he, he said that, no, I, I will not uh, refrain from the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood. And, Actually, like I said, during his death, um, but, but, but before I, I noticed that you said he was tortured in jail. This is quite important because when Saeed Kutub was tortured, um, he wasn't alone. 
Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was a doctor at the time, a surgeon, um, and also Omar Abdel Rahman, who would go on to um, have enormous ramifications, like I said, later on, and al-Zawahiri as well. Hmm. These guys were tortured for years. Because al-Zawahiri, especially, who was um, a, religious, uh, a religious individual, but because of the torture, because of under the uh, Iranian, uh, the, uh, the Egyptian uh, secret police who tortured him for year, three years, um, it gave rise to this extremist ideology of Swahiri, this notion of um, being against uh, the secular powers of nationalism and this um, overthrow of governments and implementing Kutub's yeah. work, because Kutub had an influence to Swahiri, and Swahiri even states in his work so himself. Okay, we'll come back to Swahiri in a minute because he's absolutely no. obviously crucial. Just to finish up or continue on with um, Kutub, the like I, there's an interesting distinction I think to be made between him and the the Saudi Wahhabists that they the more extreme Wahhabists did not want any technological innovation beyond that of the seventh century, and perhaps they came round to it to some degrees, but introducing things like the telephone and the TV set to Saudi were a big challenge because they didn't see any value in anything modern at all. Qutub wanted a modern society, but with Islamic values, so he wanted to embrace technology, right? And the other interesting thing then is how the ideology crossed the Sunni-Shia divide and was influential on um, on Iranians at the time, to the point that po we'll come on to the Islamic Revolution around in a minute, but Qutub was actually made it onto the postage stamp in the Islamic Republic, even though he's a Sunni Muslim. Uh, that, that divide got across so um maybe you could speak to his immediate influence then right on the, the influences work had immediately on the muslim world and going forward from that point on um, modern islamic groups sure i mean well better yet osama bin laden actually stated that it was uh uh saeed Qutb's writings which influenced uh, his notion of a growing islamic caliphate um Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, he was a student, actually, at Kutub. Um, he was also an ardent follower. Uh, he went on to become a member of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Um, Anwar al-Awaki um, says he was also heavily influenced by Isi Kutub. These, these people, actually, uh, the people I just mentioned, um, actually had such a wide influence, of course, with the Sunni Wahhabist ideology. But the irony is this is that... Um, Kutub actually initially stated that it was abhorrent to show Sunni violence upon the Shia minority. What he wanted was the Sunni and Shia divide to, uh, to liquidate. And what he wanted was the Islamic Caliphate, which was where both the Sunni and Shia uh, divide to uni unify. And from there grow the, the Caliphate by overthrowing the, the secular ideology or the Western imperialism by by growing within the imperialist nature, especially in the, um, the book, In the Shade of the Quran, he implies that in order for the, the global Islamic Caliphate to be successful, he states that um, slowly but surely, the Islamic movement would have to permeate into the Western imperial countries and the Arab uh, population would have to uh, populate, they would have to grow exponentially. And from there, they would have to uh, almost uh, slowly integrate within the government institutions themselves. And this, they would change policy. They would write regulations favorable 
to um, uh, Islamic um, countries and Islamic laws and Islamic culture. And from there, they would grow and they would, re they would assembly liquidate um, the Western imperialist nature, the, the, the secular uh, threat. And, they and this way they would saturate the global community of the Islamic Caliphate. However, this deviation, um, this, uh, this deviation was not welcomed by the majority of the, uh, the Sunni uh, uh, majority, which is the most of the Muslims in the world are Sunni. Um, many Muslims became disillusioned with Qutb's work uh, regarding uh, this, uh, this forced integration mm -hmm. into secular societies. Uh, many mainstream Muslims took issue with um, Qutb's contention that physical power or physical jihad had to be used to overthrow governments and attack societies. Um, but, and they claimed Qutb uh, as to be like this amateur uh, scholar um, and that he didn't know what jihad actually meant. And that's, that goes back to the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the premonition of earlier uh, Sunni scholars who saw jihad as an as a, um, inner struggle more than this physical mm, sure, defense sure. of jihad that yeah, we see today. And that, that's a sense of perspective I want to maintain because right. we, are, we are looking at the, the dark of the dark in some ways. Um, not to characterize people in cartoonish terms, but we are looking at the kind of thoughts that came into being and evolved that eventually gave you the wave of Islamic terrorism throughout the 90s leading to 9-11. But we're looking at that slice, right? And there's a wider Islamic world that that's taking place in, which is in many ways very opposed to that slice, obviously. Um, so I, I do want to maintain that sense of context throughout these conversations because you know, when, when we're not, you know, when it's a different culture, um, I think it's a problem with the media and the weather on, on the sort of tabloid press, you always get, you know, the extremist Muslims are the ones that ever make the front page, right? So, um, it, yeah, it's good to, to bear that in mind, that it's, it's just the, the bit we're examining. Right, the, the irony of this is, too, is that um, with the works of Saeed Qutub and his use of his implementation of the Wahhab ideology or the, the Salafist movement um, into the, the Sunni school of thought, the more extreme groups that we see today like um, Islamic State in Levant, or Al-Nusra, or Dar al-Islam, uh, or even Abu Sayyaf, they would consider Qutub as a modern Muslim, and they would kill him. So, you, you, uh, uh, you know, and, and a great example is Al-Qaeda al during the, um, the uh, Syrian uprising, the Syrian civil war. They disassociated with the Islamic State. And because they, because the Islamic State started killing Shia Muslims, Shiites and Alawites, they started slaughtering them wholesale. Mm. Al Qaeda, even then, and them, an extremist group, Al Qaeda, um, saw this as too extreme. So what we're seeing is the foundation for extreme Islam by uh, the Wahhab ideology, now implemented into um, the 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 culture or the government of Western imperial powers by Sayyid Qutb whose writings and, and motivations now influence the extreme mm. uh, right-wing orthodoxy of Islam, Bin Laden, Ayman al-Zarqawi, um, Anwar al-Waqi, and so forth. And their interpretation of those works now see this almost this quasi-orthodoxy um, uh, that uh, we see with the Islamic State. And okay, Al we'll go on to that escalation then, and maybe my thought of an entry point would be Ayman al-Sahiri, 
Um, if you want the right pronunciation of these names, listen to Adam and not me. Um, so when I like look at some of Kutub's early observations being in the United States, I think you know, I can kind of relate. I think a lot of people can relate to the idea of society becoming too atomized and losing the sense of the spiritual and everyone being too materialistic. Um, and then obviously torture doesn't have a good effect on people, right? And uh, so that seemed to take him in a worse direction. <laughs> you know, but yep. what I'm saying is that there's a movement which, and particularly Hassan Banan, the, the Muslim brother, you can relate to some of his thoughts on some, some of his thoughts on society. I think, um, I think his brother is still alive, actually. I've heard an interview with him where that he said that they would talk and discuss things um, between themselves and the, he, his brother was not as, as extremely as Islamic, okay, and didn't have this vision of an Islamic society in the way Hassan did. But he could understand him and they understood each other and, and okay, but things get worse with time and get more extreme with time as, as, as I suppose these things tend to do. Um, and maybe that brings us on to then this event that there's this, we've mentioned before Anwar Sadat coming to power after Nasser in Egypt and there being a change in Egyptian society and not cracking down on the Muslim Brotherhood and such as much. But it said he signed his own death warrant when he signed the peace accords with Israel. Okay, this was totally unacceptable. And indeed he was assassinated. And he was, it, it was, um, I'm not sure they were overtly members of the Muslim Brotherhood, were they? Because I think the Muslim Brotherhood tried to distance themselves to it, but they were Egyptian army officers who, who were Islamists essentially. Um, and after that, there was a roundup. The, this very prominent or figure who becomes very prominent, Ayman al Sahiri, was thrown into jail, tortured. Um, he was a doctor at the time, and he's now the apparently the leader of this group, Al Qaeda. We'll talk about them more in future um, in future uh, sessions. But my understanding of it is that the Muslim Brotherhood believed that there might be this great uprising after the assassination of Anwar Sadat. Al-Zahiri believed that, and then it didn't happen. And then there was this movement along with the torture of seeing, it's almost like this communist thing of false consciousness, right? That even Arab societies now have been hypnotized by the allure of the West, by the corruption of the West. And then people became legitimate targets. Civilians then became legitimate targets. Because it's a bit like, a bit like what Morpheus says to Neo in the Matrix of like, we want to liberate these people, but while they're in the Matrix, they're your enemies because they side of the system. So there was this movement of more extremism again through this central figure. Um, do you want to talk about what I've just said there and Ayman um, al-Sahiri and, and his role in this and how he goes on to be this very, very central figure in Islamic terror then, how, how he comes about and what he develops yeah, Right. You know, we see similar uh, instances today where we have the CIA's torture program, which was a whistleblower by John Kiriakou, mm. um, where we're torturing people for information. And usually these people are low-level um, operatives uh, within uh, either Al-Qaeda or other uh, Islamic organizations that don't have uh, the necessary information that could give them a little bit more of an inside view of how Al-Qaeda works. And with Ayman al-Zawahiri being tortured, now remember al-Zawahiri was, uh, even though he came up a religious figure, 
he wasn't overtly religious. He wasn't an extremist by any means. He was a, a, a surgeon. He was actually, um, his family was well off. Um, and you, he wasn't like an extremist, so to speak. They, it's almost like they made him into an extremist because of the, the years and years of torture that he uh, was under by the Egyptian secret police. Now, of course, he wasn't involved in the assassination of uh, Anwar Sadat, um, actually. Um, it was actually the group called Al-Jihad. Um, the, the members of Al-Jihad actually were arrested, and I can't uh, tell you off the top of my head, um, the, 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 um, the leader of Al-Jihad at the time, he was actually arrested for, uh, I think, eight years, um, and he was actually released, I believe. And numerous people of Al-Jihad and also um, the uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad actually left for Pakistan um, and Afghanistan. And actually, those people actually later on um, had a direct influence in the 1979 Afghan war, which we'll talk about yeah, another time. Sure, sure. Actually, they have a direct influence in that war. So it's almost like a puzzle piece. You'll see like these people have an influence with um, the assassination of Sadat. They actually have, and these people actually flee and they have an, um, an influence in uh, radicalization that's going on in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So when these people flee into Pakistan and Afghanistan and into Syria, all these uh, people that were involved with al-Jihad and the Egyptian Islamic, they're now permeating those ideologies within the countries that were now, uh, that were once nationalist countries are now uh, seeing the effects of this religious extremism, which we are still seeing today, by the way. I mean, Syria is still trying to fight the um, Islamic uh, uh, Levant, uh, Islamic State in Levant. They're winning only because of the coalition of Russia and Turkey. Uh, Turkey now is seen as the, uh, the, uh, the um, extremist groups. Uh, they are actually against the uh, Syrian Assad uh, government. Um, but look who is funding the ex uh, Islamic extremists in, in Syria, the United States, um, and, and as, well, as, as Israel as well. So what, what was going on in countries like Iraq, in countries like Egypt, in countries like Syria, these nationalist countries now have devolved into these religious fundamentalists supported by the United States and the Western imperialist power because they're easier to defeat. And of course, gives rise to the war machine, which is always um, yeah. rolling on yeah. forward. And because there's always a need for war and because of the direct threat that the religious fundamentalists pose to the Western ideologies of Great Britain and the United States. And, and of course, the need for the threat to overuse the military industrial complex to keep this war uh, going on. Okay, yeah, so I mean that, that, as I said before, massively ratchets up in the 1980s with the Afghan war. Um, and that's what we'll come on to next time. Perhaps we could finish this discussion by talking about Iran in 1979 and the, the consequence, it's because it's, it's maybe the first time that where the, the chickens came home to roost, so to speak, this support for the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamists in the country in fermenting a revolution in 1953, even though that revolution didn't directly bring the Islamists to power, it's where dissent fermented in the mosques in the following decades then, and that had this direct consequence. The destabilization of society in the 50s led to this second revolution in 1979, where we ended up with an Islamic theocracy. So maybe you could 
ex just explain that a bit as, as, as a, I'm, I mean, obviously you could, you could explain that for 10 hours, but sure. um, just in terms of how that, that linkage that we're drawing between Western support for Islamic fundamentalism and how we now we've ended up with an Islamic state. Right. In Iran. Right. Well, because, because of the overthrowing of Mossadegh and the, um, the mon which, which showed the monarchical rule under um, Mohammed Pavlavi, who's the Shah of Iran. Um, it's almost like they knew that the country would descend into uh, the, the, the power of the religious sector. If you get rid of um, this, uh, the secular nationalist ideology, there has to be um, a, a replacement in, in school and train of thought by the public. So what they did was the CIA actually fermented the belief that Mossadegh was um, not for the people and that Pavlavi would show a more favorable position for Western imperialism. Mm. Um, this, this actually overthrew the people into a, almost like a civil war between um, the religious sector and those of the nationalist sector because the nationalist people actually fled Iran. And the, the remaining people that, that, that were under Mossadegh's rule, the remaining public, um, were almost um, over the years were seemingly uh, dis, dis, uh, dis eliminated by the, the religious fervor that was growing. And I think the CIA, those, I mean, I'm going on a stretch here. I think the CIA knew this. I think they knew that in order to destroy um, the, the, uh, the secular ideology that the government, the nationalist uh, movements within these, these countries like Iran and Syria and Iraq, and, and, and implemented with the religious fervor, it would be easier to control. And we mm -hmm. saw that in 1979 when um, uh, Qaddafi, uh, um, the Shah of Iran, uh, was overthrown by um, uh, uh, the religious uh, supreme leader. Uh, I, well, I forgot his name. Hamine. Ali Khamenei. Right. And so when... when uh, he, Khomeini uh, actually saw the Shia uprising. He knew that the, the nationalist fervor was dying. He saw it as a replacement. And he saw that the Western imperial powers were trying to move in. And he saw that the, uh, the effects of the Israeli government, the right-wing government, the Likud party, actually tried to implement uh, this new fervor, tried to back the Shia Iran, but it was too late because the religious sector saw this as a uh, as an affront to the country itself. And they said, no more, we'll overthrow the country, we'll overthrow the government, and we'll implement the religious ideology of Khomeini itself. And then he himself uh, became the, uh, the sole power of Iran. And this became the real uh, threat. Not, not the nationalist government of, of Mossadegh. Mossadegh actually was seen as the threat for Great Britain and the United States only because he wanted to regulate the imperial powers yeah. of Great Britain and the United yeah. States. But now with him gone, it was, it, it's much easier to, to defeat and overthrow a religious ideology, right? All you have to do is send in the military, and the Iranian military, is, of course, is of no power or no threat to the United States itself. Um, but you just can't go and overthrow a country. It's not that easy, although some people like to believe it. Um, you would have to have the backing of the people. And the people itself don't want war. I mean, generally, the public really don't want war. And with Iran's um, uh, religious authority now, we still still now, even they have a religious um, uh, 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 religious authority that governs the country, to help almost like a Saudi Arabia, but not as extreme. 
But with the with the uh, the elimination of the nationalist sector now, what are we seeing today? I mean, even today, with with the um, this uh, just in the Shia nations, just with Syria, Lebanon, Iran, we're seeing Libya, uh, Syria, and Iran over, over wrought with um, this sectarian violence that was brought upon by who? United States, Great Britain, and Israel, and and of course Saudi Arabia, who's funding these madrasas to, to pump out these extremists at, a, at such a, an exponential rate. But, you know, but in their, in their eyes, the religious sector sees death as the gateway to paradise. But who, the Western imperial powers don't care, right? They're, they're easily replaceable. As long as the threat of the religious ideology is always present, we can always have a military um, uh, invasion of these countries and overthrow uh, the government's institute. I mean, the perfect example is Syria. I mean, and they don't even hide the fact that um, we're funding groups like the Islamic State now, Nusra, yeah, sure. or Dar al Sam anymore. I mean, but the people don't care. I mean, you could tell, you could, the people who actually want, uh, they believe that Bashar Assad is the threat. Instead, I mean, you have military people going on Twitter holding signs above their faces, saying, I didn't sign to support yeah, 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 sure, uh, yeah. the Islamic... Uh, these so that Islamic means, yeah, that's the outgrowth of this 70-plus right. year policy, right? And we'll move further into that, um, sure. for sure. So I mean, it is just, to me, it was one of the first sort of geopolitical issues I became aware of was this, um, this thing that had happened in Iran, right? And it's just an absolute travesty that you have um, movements for Iranian liberation from Iranian people going back to at least the beginning of the the 20th century you can you can see groups of that and maybe they kind of had it right in the 50s like obviously i have no idea i don't have an alternative earth and an alternative around to see what would have happened if Mossadegh had stayed in, in power but there was this secular nationalist who seemed you know as good for the country as any of our western governments are and that could have been the course for iran then right and the, the reason there was um, the energy for a revolution in 1980 because the Shah was a dictator and it was perceived that he was wasting the oil money on American military equipment and other boondaggles and you know he had his torture chambers there for any dissenters so even among um, secular Iranians there was a, a want for a change of, of leadership and that just the Islamists took over that um, and that they have their societal support too obviously um, but it's not in, in your interest or my interest or in the interest of any of the population of Western countries to have either a, a monarchical dictatorship or an Islamic dictatorship in Iran, right? It would be much better for us if the country had stabilized and taken on more secular values in the 50s and more kind of freedom in that regard. Um, so it's an absolute travesty what's happened there and has happened you know, around the world, and it cited Indonesia and so on. And these countries, you know, there was this opportunity to move into a more peaceful world um, and a more modern world after the Second World War. And it, it, we really didn't take it, okay? It got, it got whacked. And it, one of the ways it got whacked was from this use and abuse of, of Islam and Islamic fundamentalism. And, and yeah, so we've told that story, um, in, I suppose, a, a small part up until around 1980. Um, you might have some final words, Adam, but we'll, we'll kind of cut it there and then come in because everything ratchets up with relevance to 9-11. Like the 1980s is just the, the, the decade where it all comes from, really, with the situation in Afghanistan and the sub subsequent wars that grew out of that, where countries are sort of overtly using 
Islamic fundamentalists as a proxy force to fight their wars. Right. We see a continuation of that today, and that leads to this wave of terrorism in the 90s. So um, do you have anything you would like to add to this particular recording, Adam, or shall I pick it up with you next week or never for, for the next installment? I'll just add a little bit later. With now, the destru- with, between the uh, era of 1940 and 1950, when we had this uh, almost this uh, region, Middle East, uh, almost this uh, awakening, a revival of sorts of education and liberalism that was permeating um, in countries like Syria, in countries like um, Lebanon, in countries like uh, Iran, Iraq. That saw like this almost a, a hegemony between uh, the Sunni and Shia divide, even though there was a tenuous relationship there, it wasn't as extreme as we see today. With the the slow destabilization of these countries by Western imperial powers, we now are are witnessing the slow effects of that into uh, what we're going to talk about next, which is the Afghanistan Russian civil war, because Russia now sees. What is happening is that is that Great Britain and the United States are now vying for power in the Middle East. And the, what, what, what is the, the main course for power uh, war? It's oil and oil reservoirs that are dominating the region of Saudi Arabia, United uh, Arab Emirates, uh, Iran, Syria. All these countries have a geopolitical uh, military strategy for the uh, United States, Israel, Great Britain, and Saudi Arabia. It's also seen, it's also very important to, to uh, acknowledge as well. Saudi Arabia sees countries like Syria and Iran as the enemy, only on the religious level, because they're such a orthodox Sunni Salafist country. They would like to see the United States, the great, the Western imperial powers, use their military to, to slowly destroy the countries that are a direct threat to them, and that they, they themselves can be the the supposedly there's a supposed power in the Middle East region, which they're not going to be. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the weak link between the the triumvirate uh, powers or the uh, three conglomerates, United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. Once, I think in the future, once Saudi Arabia is seen as a more of a problem than what they're worth, then you'll see the wheels come off and then you'll see um, more of an internal struggle and I think we're going to see that soon, within the next 25 years. Um, also, we'll see uh, a transitional power between the Arab states and the Western imperial powers. And I think Israel, uh, soon enough, will enter the war with Iran. But that's for another discussion as sure, well. Sure. And, you know, I, also, I, I think it's very important to notice that it's not just a geopolitical uh, strategy. It's also dealing with religious, fun, uh, religious uh, uh, divide the Sunni-Shia divide, as well as a military conquest of the region itself for, strictly just for, the Western imperial powers and Israel itself, who, who can expand their borders. Uh, usually people just want to see this as just a, uh, a simple-minded, uh, oh, it's, a, you know, it's just for war, it's just for religion. It's, it's, it's a combination of all yeah, what sure. I just needed, uh, just about. And what, what will this lead to, all this, uh, the nationalist overthrow of these countries? We'll see all these religious sectors finally converting, convening into Afghanistan. And then we'll see how the United States uses them as a proxy to defeat uh, the Soviet imperialist powers. And then we'll see the real 
uh, power for the struggle for global power begin. And that's where we'll go next time. So thank you very much, Adam. And thank you everyone for listening. If you have any comments or questions for Adam on this presentation or any questions you would like me to put to him next time when we talk about Afghanistan, uh, leave a comment on whatever platform and I'll pick up on that. And next time we're off to Afghanistan to look at the, all the different aspects there. We'll of course be going to Pakistan because of that heavy involvement. Uh, we might touch on the narco-trafficking elements in the Afghan war too. And at some point, be it next time or in a future one, we'll examine double and triple agents and if everyone is really who they claim to be in these kind of conflicts and who's really working for who. Because there's a lot of questions without easy answers get brought up about that kind of thing. So that's where we're headed. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope to see you next time. Thank you for having me on, Richard. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.